0: Wherever you get your podcasts. This is an Irish independent podcast. Today on the Indo Daily, what next for Putin? Yevgeny Prigozhin was one of the Russian president's closest allies. But that was before he launched a field rebellion in June. They rolled unopposed into the city of Rostov. Their demands, the removal of Russia's senior military leadership. And then they marched on in the direction of Moscow, in a direct challenge to the
1: authority of President Putin.
0: Now, the leader of the Wagner Group is believed to be dead. He was on a plane carrying the Wagner leadership from Moscow to St Petersburg plane which fell from the sky on the 23rd of August. We start in Russia, where the founder of the Wagner Mercenary Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, is presumed dead after his plane crashed in the northwest of the country.
1: I don't know for a fact what happened, but I am not surprised.
0: Will Progoshin's death be felt far beyond Russia? What are the implications for the war in Ukraine? And what next for his field rebels, exiled in Belarus and in Africa?
1: On the Wagner Group's Telegram channel, threats have been made, and there are some reports security has been increased in Rostov, the city that briefly was seized by the Wagner
0: Group during its mutiny in June. I'm Kieran Dunbar, and in this episode of the Indo Daily, I'm joined by Jason Corcoran. He's a freelance journalist and Russia analyst. We look at the death of Yevgeny Brugosian and its far reaching impacts. Now, Jason, first of all, can we start? I'm sure at this stage most of us know who Yevgeny Prigozhin was, but could you remind us of who he was?
1: Uh, Yeah, Prigozhin has been box office for the Western media for the past um, at least two months since his um, aborted coup. Um, But he's a very interesting and complex individual. He's worn a couple of different hats during his career. He was a convicted criminal. Uh, he was a restaurateur, a caterer, the head of an internet troll army in St. Petersburg, a mercenary leader, which we know, and I would add troublemaker and rabble rouser. Um, he, he comes from St. Petersburg, same town as, as Vladimir Putin, and his father died when he was, was young. So there, I, we believe there was a lack of discipline in his youth, and he got into lots of strife, petty crime and violent crime on the streets of St. Petersburg. And he did time, I think he did about nine years in prison for theft. And then he came out of prison in the early uh, in, the, in the 1980s. And his, his parents had a business selling hot dogs on the streets of St. Petersburg, and he got involved in this. And somehow he managed to finesse that involvement selling hot dogs into a whole empire involved in restaurants, catering and supermarkets. And he acquired a stake in supermarkets. And I think it was about 95. And um, St. Petersburg was a very uh, rough and ready kind of place. And he decided to want to get into uh, the restaurant business. And he found this British guy who was working in one of the hotels, a guy called Tony Gear. Tony had worked in the Savoy in London, a very posh hotel. And Pogoshin thought he'd be a great front man for his restaurant. So he hired Gear to manage um, um, an off license, a very it was an upmarket uh, wine shop, and then this restaurant called the Old Customs House in St. Petersburg. And it's still around to this day. And I think this guy Gear is still involved in it. And um, he then finessed that involvement with the restaurants into setting up a catering uh, company called Concord Catering, which won very significant contracts with the Kremlin to provide food to the military and schools. And then he was hosting these big banquets for uh, for Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin. And if you look on the Internet, you can find pictures of Poghossian serving uh, George W. Bush and Prince Charles. And this is how he got his name, uh, Putin chef. But of course, he used all those relationships that he was uh, building up within the Kremlin to get, to get Putin's ear. And he um, came up with the idea of setting up a private mercenary army in 2014, just as Russia was an annexing Crimea. So they were deployed to Syria, Libya, and across Africa.
0: So he certainly landed on his feet. He, he certainly was a very able man and uh, he was certainly very much in Vladimir Putin's orbit. I mean, I think some people have described him as his right-hand man. Perhaps that's, uh, that's uh, an exaggeration. But he, he, he was heavily involved in the war in Ukraine and obviously the Battle of Bakhmud. His dissatisfaction with how the war was running Led him to stage a rebellion. Is is that accurate?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, he was very dissatisfied with the military, with Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister, and Valery Girismov, who was the head, who is the head of the, the Russian army and he was complaining in foul-mouthed tirades on his Telegram channel, which has about 950,000 subscribers. So he was just unleashing and complaining that he wasn't getting enough ammunition, bullets, and that his men were cannon fodder and that the the regular army were not him up and they were being sacrificed, and then he was showing videos of his own men being slaughtered on the battlefield in Donbass and in, in and in around Bakhmut. And and, and then prior to his coup, he I think this is something that people haven't really picked up on or they've that they've uh, somewhat ignored. He launched this tirade where he undermined every single reason that Putin had come up with for the invasion of Ukraine. He said that uh, Putin's idea that it was uh, a crusade to demaxify uh, Eastern Ukraine was rubbish. And this idea that uh, Russia was being encircled by NATO was complete sort of pie in the sky. So this was, was part of the treachery even before the coup started.
0: And yet he believed in the war, did he not?
1: Oh yeah, he believed he believed in the war and um, the idea of creating this pan-Slavic, sort of Russian-speaking um, empire. Yeah, completely. He, he's, a, he's a turbo patriot, ultra-nationalist.
0: Ultra now, obviously, we know this rebellion, it didn't work out and he seemed to find himself with an open motorway to Moscow with nothing in between him and the Kremlin. But for some reason, he turned, and he did some sort of deal which would have seen him exiled to Belarus, which surprised many people then. Why was he flying over Russian airspace? Obviously, the implication is that Vladimir Putin had a hand in this plane dropping out of the sky. Why would Putin have wanted Prigozhin dead if if he'd basically... Taken him out of the political equation already.
1: He was being sidelined, but he was still going. He was still going, meeting with African leaders as part of his his role as as leading Wagner. And he traveled to Central Africa. We don't know exactly where he went to Mali or the Central African Republic, where Wagner has a lot of troops and a lot of influence. Um, but what he did was he, by laying down a marker with that with that coup. That represented the biggest challenge to Putin's rule in twenty three years of Putin's reign. It also put a put a, a target on Prigozhin's back, and some Kremlin insiders were speculating that Prigozhin was a dead man walking, and Putin just wanted to resolve some issues to do with Prigozhin's empire, his his, his 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 involvement in the the, the troll internet troll uh, business, also the catering contract, and then crucially the Wagner contracts, uh, which are involved in gold mining and commodities in, in Central Africa. So he wanted to to subsume that into the uh, into the into the military industrial complex.
0: So can we say that Putin, whether he had a direct hand or an indirect hand in Prigozhin's death, can we say that he is stronger today than he was last month?
1: Uh, I would say uh, on balance that um, um Putin is 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 a lot weaker. Um and his his pro war coalition is a lot weaker as a result of not just the coup but also this this brutal um um uh, 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 this destroying of 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 Prigozhin and and Wagner. Um the biggest advocates for the war as we as we were just discussing have been Pregosian, and also a guy called Igor Strelkov. Um, he's a far-right blogger who's also been locked up and he was very critical of of, of the war and the, the military operation, the special military operation as it's called by, by the Kremlin to this day. They, they were all critical of the lack of full mobilization and the, the ineptitude and corruption of the army. And Grey Zone, which is another one of these uh, Wagner affiliated groups on Telegram, has a channel. They came out and said that the assassination of Prigozhin will have catastrophic uh, consequences, and the people who gave the order do not understand the mood in the army and the morale of the nation at at all.
0: Well, before I move on, can I ask what other political forces I understand that, uh, and you have a a great understanding of how Russian society mm-hmm. and media works. But what are other political forces and characters, I suppose, saying about the assassination of, of, of Prigozhin?
1: Mm-hmm. I, I think you've got to look at uh, the, the the Russia and its economy and the military-industrial complex as a whole within the power vertical. The power vertical is this concept that Putin came up with when he arrived in the Kremlin in two thousand, which is to bring all of the decision making. Inside the crown and it all had to go through him. So that was all working fine up until the special military operation and the invasion of Ukraine. So we're now seeing a splintering of the decision making, and the emergence of these challenges to Putin's power, which is you know unprecedented in his 23 years. And the arrival of almost mini Prigozhins, these far right characters. No, nobody from the from the liberal from the left, they've all been locked up, and or exiled. So. I think what we're seeing, Kieran, is Russia is lapsing into a dysfunctional mafia state. The economy is is stagnating. It's zastoy, stagnation. The ruble has collapsed, and the state is seizing Western assets like um, Danone and Carlsberg. And I've heard that the the Irish government's Quinn assets, which include a very, very large skyscraper, an office block, and a logistics centre in Kazan, they could be could be could be seized by the state. So I and mean then we're seeing lawlessness and arson, arson sort of for for insurance scams and banditry, which were prevalent when Putin came to power in the nineteen nineties, are back on the rise again.
0: That's very interesting what you said there. So, I mean, I wasn't expecting you to say that because certainly um, people sympathetic uh, to the Russian cause and to Vladimir Putin, perhaps on the far right and far left here in Ireland, they claim that the Russian economy is, in fact, uh, in great shape. You're saying that's not the case.
1: Uh, officially if you believe rostat which is the, the kremlin uh, uh, statistics agency um of course the first decree that was issued after the war started was that uh, the rostat could be very economical with the actuality so they've stopped issuing uh sort of uh, a lot of statistics to do with the export of energy, uh, which is very crucial to Russia's economy. So officially, Rostat and the Kremlin are saying that there will be growth this year of 2% compared to 4, 4% last year. A lot of Western economists don't fully believe those numbers. And I think what you have is, so there's a lot of growth in spending in the military industrial complex. And, and Putin has extended the social welfare state. So people, there is, there is money sloshing around, but then at the same time, you've had a million-plus men flee the war and then those who've died in the meat grinder. So there's a huge labour shortage. And they they once had a very, very sort of... um, uh, very, very active and resourceful uh, tech sector, and that's stagnating. And the state is trying to take over everything, and they can't do it. So they don't have the, the ingenuity or the innovation. So I, I think we're seeing signs of that in certainly in the cities, uh, stagnation and uh, a lot of depression, which is reminiscent of the night of the, the wild chaos of the nineties.
0: And we know that that led to much conflict. Now, some of the words that you've used, uh, economy stagnating, mafia state, far-right forces, and I'm very conscious of that because I want to turn, I suppose, temporarily to the war in Ukraine. Now, Ukrainian forces have, I think we can say, broken through on the southern axis, not totally through the Russian lines, but certainly through the initial lines at certain points. Now, some Russian politicians have been calling for the use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine to target those Ukrainian troop concentrations. I suppose, of all of the stories in the world right now, I think that that's the most profound. Do you think that Vladimir Putin would go down that road? Uh,
1: I think the jury's out. I mean, this is the use of tactical uh, nuclear weapons is something that was called for by the likes of Prigozhin and this character, Igor Gierkin Strelkov, that we spoke of and um, I, I think um, uh, he's, not, he's, he's not boxed into a corner yet. Um, there was when he was younger, uh, he used to chase rats around his Devore, Devor's courtyard in St. Petersburg. And there was one rat that was very large and Putin has, has retold the story a number of times and the, the rat was cornered and Putin had a big stick and, and the rat actually leapt at, at Putin's throat. And so Putin always says he should always leave an out for somebody. And so at the moment, uh, it looks like he has a couple of outs. But what happens when he doesn't have an out? Does he press the trigger? Um, but yes, it's hard to say.
0: I wonder, when we look at um, statements from people like Dmitry Medvedev, saying that Russia cannot simply coexist with an independent Ukraine. There can't be the both. There's one or the other. They must dismantle Ukraine and perhaps partition it into different places. And he has appealed to the world to say, well, what use is Ukraine to the world? What benefit does, does the existence of Ukraine bring to the world? I wonder to what extent do normal Russian people agree with that sentiment?
1: Uh, I, I, well, from my experience, I'm 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 i related to uh, to a Russian. I'm married to a Russian, and uh, we have extensive friends and relatives. And I lived there for 15 years. I don't think what Dmitry Medvedev says uh, tallies with what I hear from uh, our friends and relatives. Dmitry Medvedev, cast your mind back, was president from 2008 to 2012. Former lawyer, he came in, and he was this liberal guy. He went to Silicon Valley. And he had hamburgers with um, the U.S. president, uh, Barack Obama, and he had an iPhone and he was sort of embracing the West. And he was talking about stamping out legal nihilism and making Moscow a financial center to rival uh, London and New York. So, and then, you know, so he loses power when Putin comes back in 2012. So he was just a seat holder. So we all thought that this was a change of tack. There was somebody else coming in and was going to integrate Russia with the West. But he was just uh, somebody who was keeping the seat warm. And then he became sort of increasingly sidelined. And then when the war starts, he sort of resurfaces again. He's still deputy head of the Security Council, which is nominally an important position. And now he's the biggest turbo nationalist uh, right wing Talk. So I, I don't think what Medvedev says tallies what I, I'm hearing from my friends and relatives.
0: I'm just wondering, and I think we have to put it in context as well. I mean, there's no there's no sign of any forces in Ukraine saying, look, we've had enough, we must sue for peace and ask for terms. There's no, at, at the EU level, um, at the UN level, there seems to be really no peace plan beyond a military victory for Ukraine. So perhaps the question is somewhat unfair. but. I, is there any prospect of peace emerging from some sort of pro peace forces with, from within Russia?
1: I think it's it's highly unlikely because a lot of these these guys, uh, Alexei Navalny, who would who would be pro peace, he's the leader of the opposition and he was the most uh, significant threat to Putin's uh, reign prior to Prigozhin. And Prigozhin was very short lived, of course. That that the coup only lasts twenty four hours. Um, Navalny, he brought hundreds of thousands of people onto the streets of Moscow to complain against uh, Putin and his ruling party, a party of, of thieves and scoundrels, he called them. So he's been sidelined and all of the other uh, uh, sort of guys on the liberal side who would be sort of in favour of peace, a ceasefire, or some sort of demilitarised zone or something, they, they, they're all locked up or in exile or have been poisoned or killed.
0: That's quite the scene. What has Navalny said about Prigozhin? Obviously, he's in prison. What do we think he's said?
1: Uh, no, no, but Navalny. Um, he uh, actually has access to to the Western media through his lawyers, and he regularly issues uh, statements which are then filtered through uh, Navalny's uh, Twitter feed and through uh, Telegram and, uh, and and through his contacts. So, Navalny said that Putin had envied the popularity that Purgosian and his Wagner comrades had in the people's eyes and he hated them for it he called Putin a predato y truce that's a, a traitor and a coward who gave the order to kill them uh, Navalny believes that the focus of, of this war now for these guys these ultra-nationalists is, is now this saga surrounding Prigozhin and this betrayal rather than the actual war itself so
0: with the head cut off the Wagner group, does it Does it still exist? What will happen to the Wagner fighters now exiled, the people remaining in, in, in Africa, given the fact that many of them are convicted murderers and rapists?
1: I think there's a strong chance that Wagner uh, will be disbanded entirely or or rebranded after it's assumed into um, the defence ministry. Uh, It's possible that a senior officer from the GRU, that's um, Russia's uh, military intelligence service, could be installed to replace uh, Pogosian. And then the main reason, of course, for Pogosian's mutiny in the first place was because of the efforts by Sergei Shogun, the defence minister, to get Wagner and the mercenaries to sign a contract with the regular army. Uh, Putin admitted just after the coup took place that the Kremlin had spurred $1 billion, the equivalent in rubles, from the federal coffers on Wagner they don't have as much money in in the federal coffers uh, in future. So I I, I think, uh, yeah, the time is up for Wagner.
0: And yet Russia has carved out a role for itself uh, in Africa, particularly in the Sahel region. It's coming on the heels of, I suppose, what we have to call French neo-imperialism. It's backing regimes which would not get the approval of the West. So clearly (coughs) Russia will want to continue with that new role it has it has formed for itself
1: no absolutely yeah there there is very significant interest for for vladimir putin in in um, central african republic libya mali and sudan and in each of these states the governments they've given Prigozhin structures and access to mining rights in return for military backing, I think, especially in Central African Republic, which is effectively is, is a puppet of, of of Wagner and Russia, so the defense ministry will be very keen to secure these military contracts for themselves. Uh, but at the same time, Kieran, we have seen in the last year since the mili- year and a half since the military operation started, there's been an explosion of mercenary groups set up in Russia and that, who are active internationally. Gazprom, which is Russia's export monopoly for for gas, has established their own mercenary group and VTB uh, the bank, the second largest bank in Russia, is funding a new mercenary group. This has just come out in the last month called Convoy. And this is headed by the governor of Crimea. Uh,
0: It's extraordinary how much these forces have changed the world in the last uh, few years. Although I know these issues go way back. Can I ask a final question of you, Jason? And perhaps it's a profound one, but perhaps it's an unfair one. But given the gravity of what we've been talking about and the size of Russia and the power of Russia and the fact that Russia is a nuclear power, which is attempting to expand itself territorially in in a way we haven't seen since World War II, are you hopeful about the future between Russia and, and the Western world? Is there a way out?
1: I, I'm hopeful of the future, as long you know I, I have many friends and and relatives, and there's people like Navalny, who you know who believe in in making um, Russia you know integrated part of the civilized West, and you know Putin is he's he's seven years of age. Uh, the, the average um, mortality rate of, of men in Russia is sixty four, um, and Navalny is forty seven, and. Uh, um, he, he, Putin is running for uh, president again in March. It'll be his fifth term, and he's not going to last forever. You know, he's he's human like the rest of us. So I, I'm hopeful that even if somebody replaces him, even if there's a palace coup and somebody comes in who's as ex- as extreme as Putin, they'll want to do a deal with the West. They'll they'll want to uh, have sanctions dropped. They'll want to get access to their to their, to their yachts in St. Tropez to visit their, their girlfriends in Londongrad and travel and to, uh, to, to enjoy the finer things in life.
0: Jason Corcoran, thank you very much. This episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Dave Hanratty. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. Clips from BBC, Channel 4 and Sky.